question as we jump into Matthew chapter 5. How many of you want to be more and more like Jesus? You want your life awesome. <laughs> I love your excitement right now. That's so great. Um, if you haven't already read Matthew chapter 5, well, I hope you're still excited at the end of it all. <laughs> the reason why I say that is this particular conversation is so important, not because it's uh, my opportunity to deliver it to you, um, but because this in particular idea that Jesus is going to lay before us is absolutely necessary. Uh, everything in, in regards to our following in Jesus um, really hangs on this teaching. So, um, you know, you'll probably feel where, what I'm feeling and what I'm alluding to here in a minute. Um, but just know, if it is your desire to reflect the person of Jesus and to be like him, this is something that we have to hold on to with everything that we are. Ready? Okay. Matthew chapter 5. Um, as we're going there, just a little bit of cultural context. You're probably, if you have a television or a, a cell phone, you're probably very aware that we live in a world at war. Um, whether it is religious wars that are going on between belief systems and peoples or uh, countries at war, politicians at war, uh, even in your own life, technology aside, maybe there is war in your family, there are maybe wars amongst your friends, whatever it might be, but we live in a, a world with people in it, um, people who are selfish and broken and evil has uh, kind of perpetuated, and, and we're in a lot of ways at war. How many of you are tired of that war? I figured that would be your response. Uh, I have two, two pieces of good news for you. One day that war will completely come to an end. And that will be God's doing in his alone. He will literally return and he'll make everything right. And you can um, look at the scriptures and see what that will look like. It will be totally crazy and chaotic. But it is a good end to the story. Yeah, well, the heavens and the earth will be fully renewed. There will be no evil, there will be no injustice, no insecurities, no shame, none of that. Just the perfect presence of God, his people with him in his creation, the same way it was in the garden before we, uh, we fell away. But up until then, the interesting thing is, I talked about this in the first gathering, Jesus, at the end of Revelation 22, he says something really, really hopeful, but kind of like, you know, kind of mysterious. He says, I'm coming soon. Define soon. <laughs> you know? Like, that was written thousands of years ago. What do you mean by soon? Like, what type of, like, timetable are we working with here, Jesus? I think that's important to know because the good news is, again, he, everything will be made right and he is coming soon. But soon clearly means something different for God than it means for you and I. So until that day comes, we have to know how to engage, particularly in relationships with our world. We started this series on relationships. Last week, uh, J.O. talked about friendships. This week, the title of our, our conversation is Hate Me. Not friend me, but hate me. And that's because the reality is, is because we're in a world at war and there are hostile, selfish people in this world, you and I at some point in time, if not still working through that process, are a part of that equation. We have to know how to deal with the war inside of us and around us. 
And Jesus gives us um, a very, very challenging thought in Matthew chapter 5, but really a sufficient idea and theology so that we can really live in this world and be free from the chaos and the war of it. Not in the sense that we're not subject to it, but we can live above it and live through it. So, you ready? Here we go. Matthew chapter 5. This is what it says. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Don't say amen. (laughs) But I say to you, I had someone say amen to that last night. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) Slow down. He's here every week. We had a long conversation after the gathering. I was like, have you read the scriptures? I'm not totally sure. Are you saved? No, just kidding. (laughs) He's saved. But I say to you, Jesus speaking, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, and what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. A little bit of context. Uh, This is what we know to be Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which really what that should uh, trigger for us is this realization that this is Jesus' inaugural speech. He has begun the process of stepping into his authority position as the king of the universe, the savior of the world. And he is giving this speech to reveal to all of us what his reign and his rule and the culture of that kingdom will look like under his authority. Now, the people who are literally in this moment with Jesus have been awaiting Jesus for a really, really long time. And there are people who have have a, a history and a lineage of oppression and slavery. And then not only that, but now in their moment, they've been waiting in 400 years of silence from God. And they're under the Roman Empire which is maybe at this point in time, arguably in human history, some of the worst oppression and tyranny that mankind has known. So these people see this man walk up onto this mountain, which in that day and age, if you would have seen a, if you would have seen a man walk up to, on a mountain like that and start talking, what he would have been communicating is, I believe I'm God. So they would have been recognizing, oh, this is finally, after all of this silence, after all of this maybe hopelessness, our king has arrived to save us and rescue us. And great hope would have welled up inside of them. The time has come for the tyranny and the oppression to end. And then Jesus starts talking. And he says, love your enemies. I think it would have been like, oh, red flag. 
rewind that back one more time. Say that again, Jesus. Love your enemies. Hmm. This is just my commentary, things that are going on in my head as I'm reading the scriptures. Let me give you a better plan. You know, I've been thinking about war tactics. I've been thinking about how you deal with unjust, evil people. The best way is just like, let's just wipe them out. Let's get rid of them, you know? We'll solve it all right now. You're the king of the world. We've heard about you. You have the power to do it. Let's not do the love the enemy thing. Let's just like kill and murder and take care of our enemies. They deserve it. Now you might be like, Connor, that's a little bit extreme, kind of silly. But if we're honest, our natural gut reaction to hatred and pain and injustice and evil is not to respond in love and compassion. Generally speaking, apart from God, our instinctual reaction is to preserve ourselves. So we take up arms and we fight with our words and we do everything we can to get the high ground so that we would know that those who have come against us no longer have power and authority over us and we take war against them. And what Jesus is saying is that is not the way of my kingdom. Now he will one day make everything right, like I said. But until that day comes, as it pertains to us, the way in which we engage our evil and unjust world is not through hatred and war. We're not fighting fire with fire. The instruction of Jesus is to love our enemy and to pray for those who persecute us. I'll be the first one to say, this is not easy, and I don't know if I'm any good at it. But nonetheless, these are the teachings and the way of Jesus. So we have to do something with them. It's interesting to note, uh, some of the most brilliant minds in the world one of them being Friedrich Nietzsche, who was a, a German philosopher. This teaching of Jesus's to love our enemies was Nietzsche's biggest or one of his most significant criticisms of Jesus. And what Nietzsche said was, love your enemy. That's for the weak and the cowardly. Therefore, the Christian ethic is not relevant to me. Someone who is strong and courageous would never love their enemy. Now, when I, I read that as I was doing my studying, I thought to myself, I wonder if I too have taken on that same perspective at times. All the other really comfortable, easy, seemingly nice and sweet teachings of Jesus, yeah, awesome, all for it. But when it comes to enemy love, it's kind of like, let's just sweep that one under the rug. Let's really focus in on all the other ones. And when it comes to my enemy, I will take on a different approach, one that better suits my preference and my comfort level and my pride. So my question to us as we go into the scripture, and we're going to go through it kind of line by line, is even though we're Jesus followers, we're here in church, and maybe you're here and you're not a Jesus follower, 
our hope and our prayer is that you would accept the invitation of Jesus. But have we categorized our following of Jesus to fit most of the teachings of Jesus? And then when it comes to this idea of dealing and viewing with our enemies, have we taken on the opinion of Nietzsche? That it is weak and cowardly. Let's look at the scripture. Verse 43. says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Pause right here. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. What he's referring to right here in this moment, uh, he knew that the Jews had kind of culturally taken on this idiom because they had sat in silence for so long and they've known oppression so greatly. They kind of came to this place where they said, you know what, we'll take the teachings of the law We like, you shall love your neighbor. That sounds good. That's easy. We can do that one, and and we have to. That's our law. Those are our rules. So we're going to love our neighbor, but God has been silent for so long, and we're not really sure, and I don't know if they're processing this consciously, but subconsciously, as you know we do, when we feel like things are out of control, we just say, I'm going to take control. I'm going to be my own God. You know what? We're going to love our neighbor, but we're going to hate our enemy. And what Jesus is saying is, I know what you're saying. I know what you're thinking. I'm here to confront the perspective and the mindset of your time. He says, but I say to you, really interesting to know, and this is my question to you uh, this morning, regarding how you view your enemies, whose perspective have you adopted towards them? What is the voice that has given you authority and has given you a sense of truth in the way that you view your enemies? Is it Jesus, or is it another man or woman? Because what Jesus is saying is, you want to be my sons and my daughters. You want me to be your king. But when it comes to this part of the way that you view the world, you have sat under the authority and you have submitted yourself to the authority of a different type of teaching that stands in conflict with what I have for you. The irony here and the issue here that we have to deal with, and and this is really uh, problematic in our culture. It's almost like a plague. We live in a culture, some uh, people would say we live in a relativistic culture, which just means that we all individually and autonomously get to decide what we think is right or wrong based on our preference. And what that breeds and what that leads to is a society that even comes into the church where we say, I'm a Jesus follower, I'm a Christian in all of these ways. But the things that I don't like about the scriptures, the things that I don't like about Jesus, the things that are hard for me and I don't agree with, that I don't really understand, I'm going to adopt the teachings of someone else that better fits my preference. And what Jesus is saying is, if you're going to identify with me, what is going to confirm your relationship to me and your identification with me is that you love your enemy. This is not the space and place in my teachings that you get to step out on me. 
in order to be identified with Jesus. Now, we can have salvation. It's not what I'm talking about as an issue of salvation. But if we're really going to reveal to the, the world that we're truly Jesus' followers, it's in this area of enemy love that we have to submit ourselves to him. Submit our minds and our wills and our emotions and say, Jesus, I will not step out on you in this area. No matter how hard it is, how much it hurts, how much I don't understand it, I trust you. Is that your perspective this morning? That's for you to answer and work out. Okay, verse 46. It says this, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? This is so interesting. How many of you have ever been invited to an IRS party? <laughs> you know what's ironic? I heard that, and I could be wrong. You, I'll stand corrected. I'll repent if I'm wrong of this. I've heard that the IRS is like the only organization that is not held accountable to oversight. Is that true? How ironic is that? I'm sure their parties are awesome. <laughs> but we've, has anybody, anybody ever been into, invited to an IRS party? This is the moment to admit that. No? No, nobody? I can imagine who wants to go to a party with the IRS. Anybody? Probably not. What Jesus is saying because here's the issue, especially in this cultural moment in the scriptures, not so much today. If you think you have a beef with the IRS today, these people that Jesus is talking to probably paid out about 70 or 90% of their income to the, the government. Whoa. They hated the tax collectors. They were people who built their life and their income and their existence off stealing and taking advantage of disenfranchised people. What Jesus is saying is, if we just love the people who love us, we're no different than them. It's interesting, if you reflect back on the Old Testament in this people's history, God made a specific promise with Israel. A certain covenant that he would have a certain relationship with them to bless them and prosper them. So that he could reveal to the rest of the world that he was the one true God. And it's the same thing is true. That same narrative and theme is working into Matthew chapter 5 right here. What Jesus is saying is our love for our enemies is the identity marker that marks us, that reveals to the rest of the world that our God is unlike any other God. Because none of the other gods, whether it's another human being or gods of different religions, are telling their people that they should love their enemies. So what Jesus is saying, he's just challenging us, just trying to bring us to this place of reflection. If all you do, especially if you 
identify yourself as a Jesus follower, but if all your actions lived out or doing is loving those who love you, loving those who are convenient to love, you're not like anyone else in this world. Your Christianity is in vain. Now, I'm not projecting that on you or condemning you to that. I'm just, these are the teachings of Jesus. Are we different than the rest of the world? Yes. <laughs> Are we different than the rest of the world? I know in theory we are. Very few people gather this way. You know, very few other, my, like my sister's not a, a Jesus follower. And she's like, why do you tithe? I'm like, well, that's what scriptures teach us to do. It's like a lot of the things that we do or unlike other things in the world, right? But tithing and enemy love come with a different weight. Both important. Come with a different weight. This is where we really reveal to the rest of the world that our God is different. That he's unlike anyone else. And we too have a reality and a kingdom and existence that's unlike anything else. C.S. Lewis writes this in Mere Christianity. Uh, he has a whole chapter on forgiveness. If you've never read Mere Christianity, phenomenal book. But this is what he says about forgiveness. Forgiveness and, and enemy love. It's all kind of in the same context for him. And he's writing this, just his, his audience and his original context, which is always important as you're, just a side note, as you're reading the scriptures, always do the work of figuring out what the context is. It's so important. But this is what C.S. Lewis is, is actually, it's a radio talk to a bunch of soldiers in World War II who are under great oppression and tyranny. And this is what he says to them. I am not telling you in this book what I could do. He's just very humbly saying, I, I'm not saying that this is easy or it's fun or it's enjoyable. I can do precious little. I'm just telling you what Christianity is. Christianity is not just showing up to church. It's just not doing our morning devotionals. Although those, those things are important. It's not just... At some point in time, the rubber meets the road in this one area, and it's whether we have a depth of love that propels us into this space where we're able to love our enemies, and that is the culmination of what it means to be a Jesus follower. To come to this place where we're so full of love, where we're so free from the pain and the tyranny of the sin in this world, where we're able to do what is literally, as for many of you, you're processing right now, and I know that I'm still wrestling with something that seems impossible. And that is loving our enemies. This is what it means to be a Jesus follower. Okay, verse 48. Here's the kicker. Are you ready? As if those were not kickers. It says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I've taught on this scripture before, all the way back at Emma Street. And uh, 
I taught a secondary interpretation of this one verse. And right now I'd like to give you the primary interpretation of it. What I taught at that point in time uh, was uh, this word purpose is the word telos. And in a philosophical, philosophical world, often people would use or the phrase something is teleological. And what they're referring to is something has purpose. It has a goal and there's this process that we go on to to ultimately reach our goal. That's what this word means. Purpose or perfect. It's telos. And what I taught at that point in time was a chair's purpose is to hold Connor up. All right? That's the end game. And this chair is pretty nice. It's, I don't know, metal, probably made in China. It's, it's you know, it's nice. <laughs> and it holds me up. But this chair could not be nice. It could be totally uh, graffitied. It could be battered. It could have missing parts, loose screws, all that stuff. But as long as it holds me up, it doesn't matter. It's fulfilled its purpose. And what I told you at that point in time was, there is good news in the gospel of Jesus Christ for you. That regardless of whether you look battered and graffitied and beat up and maligned, that you can still fulfill the purpose that God has for your life. And that's really, really good news. But that's secondary to what Jesus is really trying to say right here. I think in the context of what Jesus is saying in this moment is our perfection, our godliness, our holiness is achieved when we do and act out the type of love that only God can do and that is to love our enemies. In our most God-like state in existence, it's when we step into this place where we have love in our hearts for those who seem unlovable, for those who have committed evils against us, that everyone else hates and has given up on and wants to try to murder and kill. We reach a state of perfection, so to speak, when we step into the scene and we add a different narrative to the equation that says that the God of the universe who has loved all of humanity has put a love in me where I'm willing to say I can love those people too. Isn't it crazy to think that? Like sometimes I think we think about the pinnacle of what it means to follow Jesus and it, it looks really, really good and fun and super charismatic and exciting. In terms of the, the uh, aesthetic of it and all those different things. And I, I think that's okay as long as we also understand that the teachings of Jesus is the culmination of our salvation on this side of eternity before we step into the other side where we won't even have to worry about all these things, is that we would come to this place in our hearts where we could extend love and prayer to our enemies. Is anybody wondering how you can actually love your enemies, like practically? A lot less hands than last, you know, the first two where I was like, please. <laughs> Let me say this. I'll give you some practical stuff. Hopefully it's helpful. Maybe it won't be. I don't know. Uh, this is just a little side note. 
and, and this is me just processing verbally, but it has value for you. Often in, on, in this setting, my responsibility is to interpret and teach the scriptures to you. Um, and that's really challenging sometimes. Uh, and I f- often feel this weight and this pressure to need to give practical like actions that we can all do to respond. And, and God gives us practical things in the scriptures. But the scriptures are not just a, a book of rules and like morality and ethics. It's much grander and much bigger than that. It's a story of God. A God who created this beautiful and wonderful world that betrayed him and has since suffered great evil and atrocity. But that same God stepped back into the picture with all of these enemies because of his love for that world to restore it and to redeem it and to make it right again. So when we read the scriptures, there are practical things, but part of it should just shape our perspective and our understanding of the greater story that we're living in. Like, I'm going to give you practical ways on which you can love your enemy, but you actually have to, like, shift the perspective and the worldview in your mind that says, I can love my enemy. And then when we can come to that place of thinking and that place of attitude and that place of the the lens that we look at everything through, then our actions and our stuff will just flow from it. But here's the reality. If it's all about actions and just morality, the weight and the power of actions and morality will run out really quick and we'll find ourselves in an impossible situation. Because Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's the God of the universe who's leading us on a journey and into an alternative reality that we are to follow him into, but it is impossible to enter into it unless we take on the heart and the mind of Christ that propel us into it. So my point in saying that to you is if at the very least, when you read the scriptures, just allow it to reshape the way that you view the world and understand the story of God If we uh, allow our Christianity just to become about our morals and our ethics, it's self-righteousness. It's about us, not about God. We're in the story of God. And the way we get to participate in that is to view the world differently and to relate to it differently, primarily in its culmination in this space where we love our enemies. Okay, practical stuff in light of that. Are you ready? Okay. I'm going to give you a, kind of a two-pronged scale. I don't know if prong is the right word. I'm not sure what the right word is, but two scales here. Is prong the right word? What's a prong? Like a pointy object? I'm not going to prong you. Two scales. <laughs> scale number one, top scale. The scale is this. Uh, passiveness to aggressiveness. Passiveness to aggressiveness. We all, uh, at different times, are enemies of someone else or, or uh, have enemies who run on this scale of being passive to aggressive. If I had said something this morning that has offended you, you probably became, a, a, you probably came, excuse me, sorry, some, I'm like Moses, I'm a mumbler. I'm a, you probably at some point 
maybe came to a place of being at odds with me, but you did it passively. You didn't like come into this place with, uh, hopefully not, hatred towards me or whatever it might be. Uh, it was a passive action. But then there's this other side of the scale where we're just totally in our consciousness, in our will, in our choice, maliciously against other people aggressively and intentionally. So that's the scale we're operating from. The second scale is very simple, nonviolent to violent. We have enemies, sometimes we have a passive, nonviolent enemy. Often they'll sit on the other side of a screen and just try to attack us and malign us with thoughts and ideas. But then there are enemies in the world like ISIS who are aggressive and violent, who are trying to destroy humanity. So those are kind of the two scales we're working with as we go through these practical things. Point number one on how you can relate to your enemies is this, if you put this up on the screen. Or how you can love your enemies. Serve them and seek reconciliation. This is a nonviolent, passive enemy. Someone who you can get really, really close to. The type of person who you say, you know they don't like you, they hate you, you know, whatever it is. Hey, can I come over for dinner tonight? And they're like, no, like, don't feel like cooking food for you. You're like, no, 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 you don't have to cook food for me. I'm bringing it. I just want to hang out at your house. And your attitude towards them, you recognize the hostility in them towards you, but your attitude, because you're not worried about them hurting you physically or whatever it might be, and you can tell they're kind of like half-heartedly, like there's hope that you could win them over. So you do everything you can to get as approximate to them, as near to them as possible, and you serve them and you seek peace. This is the way of Jesus. He stepped into a hostile world and his first attempt at healing and reconciliation is service. To wash our feet. To heal us. To live with us. Progressing on, number two, this is for uh, an enemy who is going from passiveness to aggressiveness and maybe uh, is also going from nonviolence to violence. Draw boundaries and choose silence. So you have to know about your enemies. They're generally hurting, even though they're trying to put on this facade of power. Inside, they're, they're actually deeply, deeply hurt. And the way that they deal with their hurt is to try to hurt other people. And sometimes that goes as extreme as murder or whatever it might be. And if they're starting to move towards aggressiveness and violence, draw a boundary in your life. Begin to protect yourself. Now, if you, some of you, like Eric, is a missionary here. Eric goes to countries where he can't really draw boundaries. So I'm not saying that you're always going to be able to avoid the worst possible scenario. But at the same time, because part of the problem, when we start talking about love, we have one word for love, and that's really problematic in our society, especially in light of Jesus' teachings. If I have to love my enemy the same way that I love my wife, that really creates a conflict inside of me. So we have to flesh out what this idea of love is, and we can do it through Jesus' life. Because what we recognize and what we see in Jesus' life is when he is at this point uh, in his life, right before his crucifixion, he is wrongly arrested for crimes he didn't commit. And you know what's ironic is Peter, of all people, whips out this sword and starts cutting off ears. 
It's like, dude, Jesus is like, Peter, chill out, bro. What's wrong with you? Did you miss the Sermon on the Mount? Right? Peter's trying to preserve his life. And Jesus says, and he's a little bit like sarcastic, a little bit taunting to his enemies, but he says, you know I could call down a legion of angels right now and just wipe you all out. (laughs) But he doesn't. He gives himself over. He was not taken. He gave himself over. And then he's in court being wrongly accused of all these crimes that he knows what the consequences are for, and he chooses silence. What your enemies want to do is to provoke you to a place of anger where you lash out irrationally, and that's what fuels them. The best way to love them and to deal with that is just to say nothing at all. If they're beyond the place of peaceability and reasonableness, just let them go and choose silence. Pray for them. Keep an open heart and open hands and open mind and an open door when they return. But separate yourself how you need to and choose to be silent. The third thing, progression of that, this is at the end of the spectrum, violence and aggressiveness. If you put up that next slide, you can stand with me. We're going to close. Point number three, separate yourself and set them free to God. The separate yourself part is not really in the teachings of the life of Jesus because we know that he gave himself up to the point of the cross. But if you're in an abusive relationship um, and you can get out of it, do it. Do everything you possibly can. When Jesus says love your enemy, he's not saying that you need to continue to subject yourself to the one who is abusing you and harming you. Now, you may not be able to get out of that. I don't know. There's lots of different scenarios. But if you can, get out. But then once you get out, because there is a physical out, but then there is an emotional and a spiritual out. And that is up to us. And I know it's very, very hard. But we have to make a choice at that point. Will we continue to hold on to the bitterness and the unforgiveness? Or will we set them free to God? Part of the reason why we don't do that is because we believe, maybe not consciously, but subconsciously, that we are a better judge than God is. So we hold on to unforgiveness, we hold on to bitterness, and we, we try to, to do everything we can from a distance to affect them and to make them feel the consequences of what they've done. But all that really does is hurt and decay us. Jesus, when he's on the cross, what does he say? What does he pray to God? He sets all of us free. He says, Father... He's talking about the people who wrongly put him on that cross of crimes he did not commit. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If you have an enemy who's violent towards you, who's aggressive towards you, separate yourself from them, but then set them free to God. And allow yourself to walk in the freedom that God has for you. Because he wants to heal us and set us free from that, those injustices, from those pains, from that abuse. And one day he will make it all right. But in order for us to walk in that freedom, we have to say, God, you can heal me and you'll judge them. Therefore, I will let go. Amen.